There is, I mentioned last week, uh, a certain temperament which can only seem to react to abuses by throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Right? It, it can't, in the words of Jeremiah, extract the precious from the worthless. Right? That requires nuance to extract the precious from the worthless. And I would suggest that in Protestant circles, we suffer from this sort of temperament with respect to Mary, the mother of our Lord. We often allow the excesses of other traditions, real excesses, to blind us to the glorious portrait of Mary in Scripture. So if they're guilty of an extravagant exaltation of her, we're often guilty of a kind of ungrateful neglect. Fortunately, I think, the gospel texts, when they're attended to, when they're listened to, they help us to avoid both of these extremes. Right? Scripture is always helping to calibrate us aright, to see things in their right order and in their right proportion. Last week, we saw Mary's faith at the Annunciation And our text this morning is the very next passage in Luke chapter 1. So we're going to make two points here. The visit, which is really sort of the prelude to what I want to say, but the visit and the song. The visit and the song, they're on the back out inside page of your bulletin. So first, the visit. Now, we saw this last week. At the Annunciation, Mary responds to the angel Gabriel with this obedient faith. And though she doesn't understand, she's auditing, she's trying, right? She's reasoning. And she consents in these beautiful words, Behold the handmaiden of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. And so now this young Jewish girl is pregnant with the desire of the nations. And the angel had told her about Elizabeth, her relative's pregnancy. So she picks up on the hint from the angel, and she makes her way across the hill country of Judea to visit Elizabeth. And she arrives, she arrives, and at the sound of Mary's voice, John the Baptist leaps for joy in Elizabeth's womb. For John... The womb is a pulpit. Right, the scene evokes David leaping for joy before the ark of God as it's brought into the city because Mary is the ark of God. The word and the glory of God are in her. And just as David danced, John leaps. He, the forerunner, is the first one to recognize Jesus. To accept, if you will, Jesus. And Elizabeth is filled with the Spirit. So she takes up the mantle. She speaks prophetically here. And she pronounces this famous benediction. Notice this in the text. It's often missed. The text says she did it in a loud voice. Blessed are you among women. And blessed is the child you will bear. It's a blessing. Now, 
So far, in last week's text and the opening foray in this week's text, we have this. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. All biblical. Now, we wouldn't address it as a prayer to her, but the content we would celebrate. It is a bizarre thing, beloved, and I speak here to a Reformed congregation. It is a bizarre thing when people are quicker and more sustained in their blessing of Martin Luther and John Calvin than they are in their blessing of this woman. Something is out of order in that kind of universe. Why, Elizabeth continues, am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? This is the first confession that Jesus is Lord. The mother of my Lord. Remember we said last week, there's not just a body in Mary's womb. There's a person. She's the Theotokos. She's the God-bearer. And when the Lord, when the Lord has a mother, then guess what? You have a human and divine nature joined together. So right here, we have the later formula of the church. It took the church 500 years to sort this out, by the way. But in 451, at a little place called Chalcedon, the church said that Christ is one person in two natures. We have that formula right here, if I may, in embryonic form. The mother of my Lord. It's right there on Elizabeth's lips. And Elizabeth tells her in verse 45, and here her language evokes the faith of Abraham. There are a whole series of parallels between Mary and Abraham. And here Elizabeth says, blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. So there's this beautiful balance, this sort of middle way between extremes that, you know, in Elizabeth's greeting. She doesn't say this. She doesn't say, well, I only honor God. I won't honor the saints. The benedictions are pronounced on, and the honor is shown to Mary, Twice in the text, in the Holy Spirit. Notice that. Blessed are you among women. Blessed is she who has believed. We are to pronounce benedictions on the saints. This is is not the same as being a blessing to them. Or saying that they blessed you. This is heaping verbal honor on them where it is due. Mary's role as the chosen elect mother, her faith, her Abrahamic faith in believing the word of promise, these the church remembers and celebrates and declares her blessed. Yet all of this, of course, is because of the child she's going to bear and the promises attached to the child. We are not confused here. She is the mother The one in the womb is Elizabeth's and hers and John's and our Lord. 
So Elizabeth then, filled with the Spirit, she neither neglects nor unduly exalts Mary. She honors her with what might be called fitting exuberance, with the right proportion. And to do otherwise, says none other than John Calvin on this very text, to do otherwise would be to trod underfoot the gift of God that she is. We do not honor the giver by denigrating the gifts. So that's the visit. The second point here is the song. This extraordinary song. Mary responds to Elizabeth's benedictions, plural, on her, with what has become known to history as the Magnificat. It's the first of four nativity hymns that are consecutive in Luke's gospel. And we're looking at them, Lord willing, this, eve, this Advent season. There's Mary's Magnificat. Then there's Zechariah's Benedictus. Then there's the Gloria of the Angels. Then there's Simeon's song, also known as the Nunc Dimittis. If you don't know what those words mean, we'll explain them later in Advent. But these songs are, in the words of one scholar the last of the Hebrew Psalms and the first of the Christian hymns. The last of the Hebrew Psalms and the first of the Christian hymns. There are no songs like these songs, beloved. The infancy narratives, it turns out, are a poetry recital. Or perhaps we could say they're a musical. One cannot simply say what is happening here. One cannot simply say what's happening here. One needs other forms, forms which cause us to slow down and to savor the glory. Christmas demands singing. Singing and poetry are glorified forms of speech, heightened, elevated forms of speech. I guess we'll do some of this in the, uh, the hymn sing on the, that Linda Lou is announcing to us this morning, the carols. So we find here in Mary's prayer or Mary's song a profound and a really a radical meditation on the kingdom of God, a kingdom which is breaking into history, crashing in through the events that are now transpiring in her life. This little song here is a teenage Jewish girl's theological and rhetorical masterpiece. There's almost nothing denser than this in the whole literature of the Christian tradition. She begins in verse 46, and she declares, My soul magnifies, or my soul glorifies the Lord. Right, the word here for magnifies is magnificat in Latin. That's where the name of the song comes from. But note at the outset, Mary is a God magnifier. Her soul glorifies God, her interior being, her rationality, her inner affections. God, her God, is immense. And her vision of God, much like Hannah's vision 
which she's drawing on here, is broad and deep. This is a critical modern problem, I think. For too many, God is thin or small or a kind of background figure, almost an abstraction. David Wells taught at Gordon-Conwell Seminary up near Boston for many, many years, wrote a whole bunch of very well-known, popular books, God in the Wasteland, No Time for Truth, right? Wells says we suffer from an epidemic of the weightlessness of God. I agree with that. This is, the, this is a much more decisive problem for the church than she realizes. To not have this sense of the Trinitarian fullness in the depths of the glory of God. And it is my contention that that is why the God we proclaim is so unpersuasive to the culture at large. Or at least it's a part of it. He's really boring and uninteresting. We can't even talk about him for very long. Now, we can talk about God and me, you know, God and what God, God, and what God wants me to do, God and X, God and Y, God and Z. Cut the other stuff out and say, well, let's just talk about God. Well, 12 seconds later, we're finished. We're just not interested in God. Not so for Mary. She proclaims his greatness. She rejoices in his works. She says in verse 47, my spirit rejoices in God, who is my Savior. Notice there, God is her Savior too, even as he's the Savior of all. But the God who she magnifies, she says to us, is, is the source or the fount of her joy. If, you're, if the source or fount of our joy is in some created thing, it's going to be a very unfaithful fountain of joy. But the source of our joy is in the being of God himself. So people tend to either shrink God down or magnify God. You want to be a God magnifier. The reason for this exultant magnifying of God begins to unfold. She says this, for he's been mindful of the humble state of his servant. So the things are connected here in a profound way. God is big Weighty, if you were big in Mary's vision, because she's small in her own sight. God is weighty because she is inconsequential. People cannot take God seriously and take themselves seriously. It's a virtual impossibility. Because to take God seriously is to recognize the vaporous quality of human existence. Smoke, puffs, fading grass, the unbearable lightness of being. In Isaiah 40, famous passage, the prophet has a vision of the transcendent Lord, the infinite Lord, the eternal Lord who transcends space and time. You know it probably. It's a famous text. And Isaiah pictures God there as the eternal creator, lifting up the nations in his fingers like they're sand. And then 
putting them on a, on a the, puts the nations on a scale, and the nations are like this, the, the, the dust that's left over on the scale that you have to just go like this with. It's as if all the nations of the world, in the light of this transcendent God, I mean, think of this, North Korea, Syria, all the nations with all their weapons and all their turmoil and all their human drama and all their culture. When Isaiah sees this God, you know what he says? They're like a drop in the bucket. But that's not enough. He goes on and says, they are nothing. And then he goes on and says, they are, in fact, less than nothing. Now, when's the last time you bumped into a Christian whose transcendent vision of God made you feel like the whole created order and all the nations and all the turmoil of all the tribes and tongues was less than nothing? Compared to the splendor. This is what I mean by the weightlessness of God. The nations are big for us, man. They're big. We're engaged and they're jerking us around left and right. We're responding. And God is an idea back there who gives us some information about how we might interact with the nations. It gives us power too, but the whole picture is wrong. Not for Isaiah. Not for Mary. Look, if we are not traumatized by God and ravished by God, then you can't expect the culture to be. They will not believe a gospel of God, even if it's formally correct, if the of God part of the gospel is thin. So often you'll hear this. We occasionally hear this at the New York State Presbytery. We have candidates. We examine them for office. Often, they get asked a question like this. What do you think is the most pressing issue on the church today? Almost always, the answer has something to do with anthropology or culture. You can get all that stuff right, but if the God behind it is not this God, The whole thing is uninteresting. So, Mary has a weighty God because she's inconsequential. In Chesterton's words, angels can fly because they take themselves lightly. And he goes on and he says, Satan fell by the sheer force of self-important gravity. The sheer weight. So when Mary speaks of her lowly estate, she's simply stating a fact, right? There's not a shred of self-pity here or false humility. It's just a sober assessment of reality. Humility is sanity. Economically, socially, politically, she's poor. She's humble. But this is the key, right? Even in her stripped-down, constrained estate, the world still opens up for her into the infinite glory and the grandeur of the God of Israel. Like the angels, Mary flies. 
But you can't be lifted up unless there's something substantive, magnetic, to be lifted up to. Notice also as well with Mary, this means that her relationship with God is completely non-contractual. There's no deal cut here. Like, I'll do this, and you'll do that. And if I do this, I expect you to do that. It's in and by and in the depths of these constraints that she has cultivated a God-magnifying soul. And the result in verse 48 here, verse 48, is remarkable. In most of our Bibles, it reads like this. From now on, all generation of Roman Catholics will call me blessed. (laughs) This is, of course, not what it says. It says, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Now, is this, what kind of hubris is this? I mean, can you imagine? This is a teenage Jewish girl saying, from now on, every generation to come will call me blessed. This is the way of the kingdom, right? It's the mystery of God's ways. Through her own joyful, free acceptance of her estate, her her position, her calling, Mary, irony of ironies, Mary has made a name for herself. There's There's no competition here. Glory is not a zero-sum game, is it? Now, God will not give his glory to another, meaning another God, nor will he give it to a rebellious human being. But he will lavish it on his saints. He will spread the glory around. And you know what? When he spreads the glory around, he doesn't lose any because glory is not a scarce good. Right? It's like a teacher. When a teacher teaches, they don't become dumber, right? Because knowledge is not a scarce good. If I give you water, I lose water. If I give you knowledge, I don't lose the knowledge. Well, when God gives glory, he doesn't lose any glory. He pours the glory out on his people. That's why Mary can say perfectly compatibly in the same breath, I magnify the Lord. My soul magnifies God. And all generations will call me blessed. And that has, in fact, happened. We're joining the chorus here this morning. God exalts those who exalt him. You want that? That, There it is in simplest form, right? He magnifies those who magnify him. And she calls God the mighty one. And here she displays a keen insight into the logic of the gospel. Because might is not raw power. What might has God shown? She's pregnant. Not even that far in. This is the power of God manifested in a pregnancy. In the self-emptying of God into the womb and weakness of childhood. The mighty one, she says, notice this again, has done great things for Me. She understands she's at the center of something big here, of what's transpiring, but not, this is the profound thing about her, not as an isolated individual. We said this last week, but 
it bears repeating, Mary stands at the end of a long line of mothers in Israel, right? Of Eve and Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and Hannah and many more. And as such, she recognizes that the great thing that God has done for her, it reverberates out to the whole covenant community, ultimately to the world. And so she says in verse 50, His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. She links the events of her pregnancy to the multi-generational covenantal mercies of God to his people. Who can do this as a teenager? I mean, imagine a pop theological quiz that went something like this. In two sentences... Connect your pregnancy to the covenant with Abraham. (laughs) She's just ready to do it. And in fact, she's been prophesying here. That becomes clearer in the rest of her song. Right? Because the rest of the song is really dangerous stuff. On top of all of this, Mary's no wallflower. She really is prophetic here. And in verses 51 through 54, if you look there, you will see that she speaks of the works of God, of what has happened and is happening in this pregnancy. She speaks using he has, past tense, seven times. He has performed mighty deeds. He has scattered the proud. He has brought rulers down from their thrones. He has lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry. He has sent the rich away. He has helped his servant Israel. That's the prophetic past tense. He has, these things are as good as done. For the incarnation of the word entails the coming of the kingdom in all of its fullness. The first coming and the second coming are locked together. So she's a visionary here of what has been called the upside down kingdom. A kingdom which is not confined to individual salvation. Notice this as well. There are so many startling things in this text. Notice this as well. This is the climactic moment. This woman is pregnant. She's the mother of our Lord. This is her historic exclamation about what's happening and what God is doing. And in it, there is not a syllable about individual salvation. There's no four spiritual laws here. There's no way of, there's no gospel presentation in any traditional form. None of that. It's about the vindication of the covenant promises to Abraham and Israel and the remaking of the world. That's the story. That's remarkable. This pregnancy, she is saying, is an invasion of the world which has been invaded by sin and death and the powers. You know what's going on, she's saying? God is counterpunching with the powers. And she says in verse 51, he has scattered the proud in their inmost thoughts. How has he done that? I mean, all we have is a pregnant baby, a pregnant woman. Well, he does it through the gospel, through offering salvation by Mary's baby, through the scandal of a crucified Messiah, who is foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews. He brought down rulers from the thrones, she says. Not only the proud, but the powerful are going to be offended by this gospel. That's, That's what she's saying. With the birth of this baby, 
Secular political power is, in Paul's words, coming to nothing. The rulers are not replaced with better rulers here. They're just removed. Mary's baby is Lord. All other thrones will be dismantled. And at the end of verse 52, she says, He's exalted the lowly or those of humble estate. It's already happened, she says. Can you imagine that? All the rich and powerful, they've been brought down. The lowly have been exalted. The whole social pecking order has been overturned in principle already now because of who is in my womb. He's filled the hungry, she says, with good things, but the rich he sent away empty. Now here, and you could see why if you're an attentive reader, right? In the history of the church, especially in the 19th and 20th centuries, right? Mary has been read here as if she were a Marxist. Right? Or a promulgator of the social gospel. Now, I think that's a caricature, but it's not a caricature for the reasons normally given by American Christians. First, if anything, Mary is more radical than Marx. She doesn't envision a classless society of bliss where goods are justly redistributed. She envisions a new world where the rich are sent away empty-handed and the poor are filled with good things. That's not an even distribution. (laughs) After all, we heard this in the New Testament lesson. James says, God has chosen the poor so that they might be rich in faith. So Mary is foreshadowing here what her son will later say in the Beatitudes. You know, you want to know where Jesus got a little bit of that blistering, bleeding, cutting edge of his teaching style? He got it from her. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Who do you think taught Jesus that? So the demands of the kingdom can't be spiritualized away. It's good news for the poor. It's unappealing to the self-satisfied rich. And Mary's baby is going to pronounce a whole series of stinging woes on the rich and powerful in Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 6, the Beatitudes there. So Mary now says, this Baby declares a world, speaks forth, brings forth a world where the powerful do not share their power, but they are stripped of it. And it's given to the weak and the lowly and the poor. It's a social gospel in this sense. It's an announcement of there being a new society, a new political order called the church, which will be raised out of the ruins of the old order. So how does Mary think of the kingdom? She thinks it's a series of startling reversals and that it's destined to unravel all the kingdoms of the world. This in maybe the second month of her pregnancy. And all of this, all of this, you see this in verse 54, is summarized as helping his servant Israel. I mean, that's, that shows you how well she learned in the temple and in the synagogue. She takes up the language of the covenant. I want to point something out about this young prophetess to you. In this song, in this prayer of hers, she has drawn on or she has alluded to Genesis, Deuteronomy, Judges, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, the Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, 
Micah, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah, all in about one dense paragraph. Here's Kevin's rule of alluding to texts. You can't allude to Ezekiel if you haven't read Ezekiel. It's unlikely that your speech is going to be full of allusions to Zephaniah and Habakkuk and Deuteronomy if they are not in your bones and blood. This is an astonishing woman of theological density. She has a thick God, and the thick God creates theologically thick people. The thin God creates thin people. She doesn't just know Bible verses. She can actually do stuff with them. Like, she can actually architect them together into some incandescent, radiant thing, compressed and economical. This is an achievement, this text. Calvin says she not only carried the word in her womb, she clearly carried it in her heart. All of these things, she says in verse 54, are God's remembering to be merciful to his covenant, to the promises made to Abraham and his descendants. Again, she's got this deeply corporate, historical, covenantal consciousness. She sees everything that's transpiring in light of these ancient promises. So let me conclude about her and about what we learn here. So she's got this burst of notoriety, Mary does, in the early chapters of the Gospels. And then in accordance with her lowly state, it would seem, perhaps this is the fate of mothers, who knows, it would seem she just fades from view. Back into obscurity. We see her at the, at the foot of her son's cross, faithful to the end. And then we see her in Acts chapter 1. She's just in the crowd, praying with the disciples. And then she vanishes. Vanishes from the pages of the New Testament. Or almost so. Because in Revelation chapter 12, we see a woman in heaven, clothed with the sun, who has the moon under her feet, who has a garland of 12 stars on her head, and who possesses heavenly splendor and glory, who's filled with the splendor of the God she magnified. She's in labor, the text says, to bring forth a man-child who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. It's a vivid picture of Old Testament Israel laboring to bring forth the Messiah. But since Mary is the one in whom the struggle culminates, the actual mother of our Lord, the image clearly, certainly has special reference to her. And as such, she stands to remind us that the hidden ones will be lit up with the radiance of God's glory the lowly ones will be lifted up on high. What she prophesied about, she now partakes of. She is a reminder to, as Paul tells us in Colossians 3, set your minds on things above, for you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. This hiddenness, this obscurity, is simply a part of the church's life. 
But make no mistake, wealth and power have been, are being, and shall be transferred to her. And when Christ appears, Paul goes on to say, when Christ appears, that is when Advent is fully complete. You, like Mary, will be revealed with him in regal glory. Praise be to God. Amen.